Welcome to the Swapflex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are recording in three separate locations once again to talk about movies. After a brief hiatus so that Brittany could talk about some Lifetime movies on the podcast, <laughs> we're all back together, the original Landyap gang. I have not talked to y'all in a while, so I have a lot of titles stored up here, and I feel really bad about the unloading I'm about to be doing. So um, before I start rambling on and eating up all this airtime, please someone jump in and tell me you've been watching something besides what we picked for our main topic today. I have not been watching too much, but I did finally watch uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And interesting. I was not expecting to like it as much as I did. I mean, everybody's done and been talking about it. The hype machine has come and gone, but I did like it and you know it's it's tough because you know Tarantino's a little dweeby like weenie man and if he's listening I'm not sorry but <laughs> you know it felt very like Coen Brothers-y and I think that's why I liked it so much I can see that I was surprised by how angry that film is like yeah it felt like it was a movie that was specifically angry at youth <laughs> And at young people like inheriting like this like Hollywood landscape that he feels is like slipping through his fingers. I don't know that I love the movie, but I liked that it it had like a point of view, which yeah. was this very like get off my lawn kind of thing where he's like, I can still shake things up and offend people and um still do his like talky overwritten dialogue and get praised for it. Yeah, I mean, I liked it. I thought that, you know, the chemistry between Brad Pitt and Leo was like really good and you know I kind of for some reason didn't expect them to have that sort of rapport I don't know why I'm like two of the most famous actors in America and I'm like oh surely they'll just be like trying to hog screen time from one another but they played off of each other really well you know like I said the classic talky dialogue and yeah once again it felt very Coen Brothers-y what do you mean by that it's just like that quirky, like, sort of, you know, twists and turns and like all of the plots kind of like ending up like mashing together and ensemble sort of thing. And, you know, even their movies have like graphic violence in them. So I don't know. It, it just gave me that sort of vibe, I guess. Yeah. And other than that, I've... uh also finally been watching through the television show of what we do in the shadows and it's great everybody who's watched it has said that forever but finally getting to it loving it and i have watched a couple episodes of the live action netflix cowboy bebop i don't know if either of y'all have i don't think i ever will (laughs) (laughs) you know it's all right uh I was not, like, from the first peaks of it, I wasn't really loving John Cho as Spike, but, you know, it, I've warmed up to the idea. Um, obviously, it's never going to be the original, but I think it does its own things. Um, you're not missing out, Brandon, by not watching it ever. That's fine. Yeah, I I think there's just some things that, like, Especially with animation, like there's some things that you can only do in that medium. Mm-hmm. So like to watch something that worked so well as an animated property and then like watch it sort of like de-imagined 
Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't seem reimagined. It seems like unimagined as something like sort of more straightforward as this like space noir. Mm-hmm. I just have no interest in it whatsoever. No, that's but, you totally know, fair. I also am like watching old seasons of Project Runway All-Stars on Tubi right now. <laughs> so I have no, uh, <laughs> like, it's not like my tastes are highfalutin or anything. No, it's no. just like I'm occupying myself with the other trash <laughs> instead. You are a connoisseur of trash. You have too much <laughs> trash to savor to spend your time on middle of the road. I don't need the shiny new trash. There's old trash rattling around on Tubi. Uh, yeah. It still has an allure for me. 100% fair. Um, I watched an episode of a telenovela, Fantasma de Elena, or uh, Elena's Ghost. It's your typical telenovela. I really don't feel like anybody uh, wants to know the plot of the Spanish soap opera that is entirely exactly what you would expect. <laughs> I feel like I do kind of have an... I know exactly what that's about. Yeah, you know what it's about. I, I feel it in my bones. Uh, speaking of you and your feelings of what I've been watching, what have you been watching? I have, I guess, watched, watched different things than that. I had a, I had a moment where I texted Brandon earlier this week where I was like, I'm not going to have any movies to talk about because I've been, you know, I went uh, and visited my aunt and uncle and then I went to my parents for Thanksgiving. And since I have been back, I've been, you know, just sort of getting caught up on work and everything. But I was like, oh, I can talk about what I read while I was traveling. The TSA agent at the airport, she was actually like kind of shocked. Uh, this is going to sound pretentious, but she was kind of shocked whenever I didn't have anything to take out of my carry-on. She was like, no laptop, no tablet. I was like, no, just books. And she was like, oh, no one <laughs> travels with just books anymore. But uh, I did because, you know, I finally finished reading two things that I've been working on for a very long time um, on this trip. The first was Even Cowgirls Get the Blues by Tom Robbins, which I have been reading for so long. And I don't know if either of you have read that one or any other Tom Robbins before. I've seen the movie. But I've heard that. Oh, how's the movie? It's not my favorite Gus Van Sant, but it's not the worst either. It's it's pretty all right. It's from his like uh, drugstore cowboys period, and that movie's just like so much better. But I'd, I'd be willing to revisit it. It's been a long time. I've never seen it. I, I knew that it did exist. And to my knowledge, I think it's the only Tom Robbins film adaptation. Oh, okay. Because I've read, you know, Still Life with Woodpecker, which I think was my favorite. And the first one that I read when I was in college was Fierce Invalid's Home from Hot Climates. And that one um, also I don't think has ever been adapted. And I don't think that that's actually that absurd because his books read as being unadaptable. There are just so many things that jump around in time. There's so much stream of consciousness going on. There's so much, you know, sort of callbacks that won't work at all in a visual space where, you know, 50 pages later, you might get the end of a rambling story that actually turns out to be the punchline of like something that happened, you know, on on the on page 35. So his books don't really make sense as adaptations. And I would be interested in seeing even Cowgirls Get the Blues because it's it skips around so much in Sissy's life and and also features so much life on the ranch without her and like her going up into the hills with a character that has a name that is a racial slur but one that you know I'm not going to make any excuses for it but it's uh, it's one of those things where at the time it was written it was meant to mock ignorance but now 
you know, just kind of seems like it's in poor taste and it would not be okay now. The other thing that I've been working on for a while that I, I finally finished was Shishin Liu's novel, The Three-Body Problem. And it's kind of a slog um, for the first 75 pages or so. It really, <laughs> I, I don't know if this is an analogy that'll make sense to everyone listening, but it really is like a left-behind novel for like the first 75 pages. Not that there's like a, a, a rapture event or anything, but it's written like those books where it's like, the characters are very impenetrable at first. Your your point of view character that you get um, at the very beginning is someone who's only really in the book for about 30 pages, and then their child becomes like a significant, but again, not necessarily main character later on, or at least not someone who's super important until like the conclusion. It's a it's an interesting one, and I definitely think it's worth reading. I don't really want to get into too much detail about what it's about because it would really give away too much too soon, but I give it a big recommendation. And then finally, while I was traveling, I I read the George Saunders book, The Brief and Frightening Reign of Phil. Oh, I have not read this one. I really enjoy his books, though. This is the first one that I've read, and he did an event here in the city a few years ago, like a reading and two of my very bookish friends were like, Oh, I can't believe George Saunders is coming. I'm going to go see George Saunders. And at the time I'll admit my ignorance. I had never heard of him. I had no idea who he was. Definitely a bookie person writer. (laughs) I, I got a couple copies of a couple books of his. I've got Lincoln on the barrio. Oh, I really enjoyed that one. I haven't started it. I, I, I guess I wanted to, uh, there's a place called bookoutlet.com. We are not sponsored where they sell books for like extremely, extremely discounted prices. And back for my birthday, I treated myself and spent like a hundred dollars and got like 25 books. And that was one of them. And they're largely like uh, remaindered books. But if you wait long enough, you can get a lot of copies of like, you know, Sedaris, mm-hmm. Atwood, you know, it's it's not yeah. just when you think of remaindered books, you usually think of like, you know, one shot authors who maybe had one book and then their second one didn't do so well if they ever even got a second one. But no, there was a George Saunders book and it was a dollar and 50 cents. And I was like, let me try this one. And it's very short. It's only like 130 pages. Uh, it was published yeah. in 2005. It's interesting. He does like a lot of work with like short fiction that I do enjoy. And I'm not usually like a big short story fan. But his short story collections are some of my favorites. Like they're so good. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to read Lincoln on the Barrio next cuz I was like standing at my bookshelf before I left. I was like oh, I need to take at least two more books. And uh when I got on my first flight, the guy sitting next to me was watching The Magicians, and I loved that show so much that I I bought, again, from bookoutlet.com, we are not sponsored, remaindered copies of those three books that the show was based on, just because I wanted to like live in that world a little bit longer. And I haven't read them yet, mostly because <laughs> all my friends have read Three Body Problem, and I want to be a part of that conversation. And it was such a slog for a while. But I almost brought the first one with me on my trip. And I, I, the guy was watching the show. I was like, I literally talked myself out of putting that book in my bag this morning. Uh, I guess that's Swamp Books. Thank you for listening to Swamp Books. (laughs) On the plane, though, I did watch Pig. And it was great. So good. I think that might be the like one time I like 
actually cried during a movie all year, which is crazy because that usually happens to me all the time. It was like the first like return to the theater post COVID, not post mid COVID to me, like post right. uh, hiatus, like theatrical hiatus this summer. And I guess I went in expecting like a typical Nick Cage revenge thriller and just like how much thought and care went into like, it's like fine art of fine dining and like the way food triggers memory and stuff like that. It really flooded me with emotions in that final like 15 minutes in a way I did not expect. And I got very teary eyed for like the whole last act. I thought it was beautiful. I actually only saw the first 65 minutes of it on the plane because it's a very short flight between North Carolina between Raleigh and Atlanta, but it's on Hulu now. So I was able to finish it when I got home. And although that's not the same as having a a pure theatrical experience, I did love it. I loved the somberness of it. I loved its silences. And every once in a while, you know, Nick Cage kind of, he's always giving a big performance, but sometimes that that big performance is almost always like a manic performance, right? And this is like the opposite of that. It's a big performance that's very dour. It's like, oh, right. Every once in a while, he'll come out with something where even like his best works, right? Vampire's Kiss and, and Raising Arizona. He's very manic in those. But this is like, oh, wow, okay. But the last time he was reserved like this was for that movie Joe, and I felt like I didn't understand what everyone was so excited about. Like, why would you want to see him reserved and not doing his thing? Like, anybody could put in this performance. There's nothing about quiet, gruff masculinity that's, like, Nick Cage-specific. But I think in Pig, it's just used for a better and, like, more memorable effect. So, like, I get it this time. I did not get it with Joe. I think Pig is actually the real deal. But yeah, big recommend for me. I also saw... There's something inside your house, which I can't give a recommendation to. Uh, I sent over copy on it, and it went up just the other day. Interesting. There are parts of it that are really good. It it kind of feels like it's going for a real, not necessarily a scream thing, but kind of an I know what you did last summer thing. And by that, I mean, it feels like a Lois Duncan novel more than anything else because it's like the kids have secrets it's it's there's a murderer in this small nebraska town and he's specifically tracking down and killing people who have kept big secrets like the football star who actually like beat a kid almost to death during a hazing event and you know the goody two shoes student class president who wrote uh her like college application letter by like co-opting someone else's like story, but you know, in an open-minded way, turning out to be like a um, voice of a white supremacist podcast, right? And our main character has a, a pretty harrowing secret that she's keeping as well. It just kind of wants to do more than it can do, and it's really trying to perform it's well actually it's successfully performatively demonstrating like social justice but in reality it's mostly just co-opting buzzwords in order to seem more relevant than it is because the thesis of it doesn't really hold up and you can read more about that in the in the review that i wrote but i know brandon you had said that you had heard about that one i had heard that the uh the gimmick with the killer's mask was cool and um i think that's probably true but I did not 
think that was enough to convince me to watch a Netflix slasher, <laughs> which uh, I've avoided several times this year. Like I went to straight to Netflix. I kind of know how low that ceiling is in terms of quality. And I don't think a, uh, a really cool mask is going to be enough to make that worthwhile for me. The mask is cool. Uh, I will say that because <laughs> it's not, it's not just a ghost face mask alley. It's like the killer actually like 3d prints masks of his victims faces. Oh, that is kind of cool. So you're like stabbing yourself. Yeah. Like the last thing you see as uh, before you die is like, I guess metaphorically your secret killing you, you killing yourself. But there's also, and it, honestly, if I had not been <laughs> in an airport, and I hadn't been kind of won over by a really good joke at the very beginning where the the killer has like got the football kid trapped in his closet and the kid's like, what, what do you want? Do you want money? I can, I can Venmo you right now. Like that cracked <laughs> me up because it's, it, that felt like it actually did kind of understand something about like young people and youth culture where it's like, obviously this kid wouldn't have cash. Obviously he would have Venmo, you know, whatever, but begging for your life will be like, to be like, I can Venmo you money is also just like funny on its face. While I was home, I thought that my parents and I could watch Black Widow because, you know, uh, the, the Marvel movies are, are very, they have a, a, a universal appeal. You know, they, people watch them, you know, and especially that one, doesn't really need a whole lot of outside context, but unfortunately they didn't have that at the red box at the Winn Dixie. So we watched <laughs> Ant-Man and the Wasp instead. And I still liked it. I, you know, I have, I have friends who like don't enjoy these movies. And I think that there's a perfectly valid. Yeah. When you said people watch them, I was like, yeah, that's about how I feel. <laughs> people, watch you know, them. I, <laughs> I gen I genuinely generally enjoy them with some exceptions. They're just fine, fun like action flicks, you know, whatever. The sort of um completist in me loves the you know bigger, ongoing, growing thing. I'm just a comic book nerd, and so you know I think that that's neat. I think that that's uh, but again I'm not here to carry water for like the largest monopoly entertainment company on earth that's like ravaging the environment you know there's plenty of things to uh criticize in the film series but it's generally like a safe bet that you can watch it with your family right and that uh, again was true you know that one also being one of the more comedic ones managed to um toe the line and keep everyone invested but once I got home, I also saw the movie Paper Tigers. And I would say if you're looking for something that is generally safe, a safe PG-13 that you can watch with your family, this one's currently on Netflix. And I, it gets a recommendation from me. It's about three now supposedly middle-aged men. The, one of them, <laughs> the actor playing Danny, Alain Uy, there's not an age for him online. The other two, one of them's 52 and one of them's 48. The actors are. So like they are, you know, even though they might look good for their age, they are middle-aged. Whereas the actor playing Danny, I couldn't find any information about his age. He looks a lot younger. And according to his Twitter, because I'm a crazy person, he's nostalgic for both the Nintendo 64 and you can't do that on television. <laughs> so I don't, he can't be that old, right? 
like you know he retweeted like a this is my childhood uh, with like four nickelodeon images and it's like so your shorts which i watched when i was a kid hey dude which i remember from when i was a kid something else that i don't recall or uh, reading rainbow which was not nick i misspoke before and you can't do that on television which was completely before my time as someone born in i'll just say it 1987 so i have no idea how old he is but anyway what a weird tangent sorry I just couldn't find any place to put that in my review, and I wanted to get it out into the world just to let you know that I did the research, um, even though there was no place to put it. But it's great. Um, it's sort of a dramedy. There's not a lot of laugh-out-loud humor in it, and the things that are supposed to be a little bit more laugh-out-loud, you know, I, I was pretty discouraged when there's like a fart joke in the first five minutes, because that's not really my kind of humor. But it is very feel-good. Um, these three men, they're now in their middle age when they were... Younger, they were trained by uh, Shifu Kung Fu Master, and then they just sort of drifted apart in their adulthood. And then when their Shifu dies and is possibly murdered, they decide to try and get to like the bottom of the of who the killer is and why and what happened. And so there's a lot of really fun stuff that does come like humorously, like at the expense of. there's clearly a lot of like karate kid energy going on here in the sense that like the main character's name is Danny, just like Daniel San and karate kid. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's even like um, the guy who played, I forget the actor's name, but chosen the villain of karate kid two is in this movie. And so it, it clearly is like kind of borrowing some of its ideas from like that world. But it's not as cloying as it could be with some of its like adulthood problems and it's funnier or it's more heartwarming than it has a right to be in the way that it does handle those. So uh, I, I even tried to go to plugged in, which is a, a Christian review space online. When I was a kid and we had internet for the first time in our house, we had integrity online, which is an internet filtering ISP so that you couldn't access anything that was non-Christian and we got a, like a free subscription to Plugged In where you could read their like movie reviews for new releases so that Christian parents could decide whether or not something was appropriate for their children to see. They have not reviewed Paper Tigers, but I did go to like the IMDb parental ratings because that's, that's where I go. I... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's weird because, you know, my parents used to try and like, you know, prevent us from seeing these things that were salacious because they were trying to like protect us and now i have to go to these sites to be like oh are there going to be too many bad words to trigger my dad (laughs) (laughs) right so um that one it's pretty you know (laughs) a while back my dad was telling me that they were watching the mandalorian he was like it's a good show it's clean and so that's what i'll say about the paper tigers it's a good show it's pretty clean you know (laughs) there's some like there's a lot of really great martial artistry going on the movements are very fluid it's very impressive uh it's really cool to watch but you know it's bloodless and when there is bad language it's very brief you know and it's not omnipresent and you know you don't even have to wait to watch this as a uh, edited for television movie with your family you can watch it at any time big recommend for me and also i would just enjoy watching it by myself again but um brandon what have you been watching 
too much. I'm in the middle of like best of 2021 homework, just like cramming in movies I've been meaning to see all year and have been waiting to show up for free either through the library or through subscription services I'm already attached to. And there's like some that I'm like just giving up on that happening before the end of the year. So I've been watching a lot, but there are a lot that are available for everyone. Um, I, first of all, caught up with two movies. I'll just go very quickly on them because Boomer recommended them both, but I caught up with, uh, things heard and seen and we need to do something. Yes. Of the two I preferred, we need to do something, but I will say, I will, you know, echo that the reputation things heard and seen has is like one of the worst movies of the year is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I think, I think it's a little sloppy at the beginning and, and very sloppy at the end, right? But, um, in the middle, there's a lot of good stuff. So that one's on Netflix and we need to do something is on Hulu. Now it just popped up there this weekend and um, something watching them in a row, just a weird connection between them. They both had a very fucked up gore gag involving a sink and things heard and oh, seen. Yeah. She pulls out this like fetus, from the garbage disposal. Uh, and it's just really weird, like surreal gag that has nothing to do with like the ghost story at the core of the movie. And then in, we need to do something, which is a witchcraft film. Um, this dog's tongue <laughs> sort of rides around, um, still pumping blood in this like bathroom sink, uh, for about a good solid minute. Um, and people try to eat it cause they're very hungry. <laughs> and, uh, both of those scenes <laughs> had me like squirming, um, in a very similar way, which I did not expect to see that kind of connection between them. Cause they're not in the same genre really, besides being horror broadly. That tongue moment. <laughs> it's so, it's gross. so good because at that point you don't know, Right. It could be the dog. Uh, and at least as far as the little boy knows, right? Everybody else in the family is like, mm-hmm, right. But then I don't know if you looked at IMDb and saw who does the voice. No, I didn't. It's Ozzy Osbourne. He has one <laughs> one line as a voice cameo in it as the voice on the other side of the door where, you know, they're just feeling... You know, they're feeling Allie like the uh, they're, they're trapped and they've got like their their hands are being licked and they think that it's a dog on the outside of the door. And they're like, who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? And then suddenly there's this oh like God. voice. It's like, I'm a good boy. Uh. <laughs> it's so scary. It's so good. Didn't they even make an Aussie joke in the movie? They're like, you just bite it like uh, Ozzy bit the chicken. And they're like, wasn't that a bad? Oh, yeah. I think I think that is true. And there's a lot of like um heavy metal just ephemera in the film because the the teenage witch um would be teenage witch in in the bathroom with her family um her girlfriend is this like heavy metal enjoying goth loner um and the movie ends on a gag where you think the situation's relieved itself but it just gets worse and then like uh, heavy metal guitars like overwhelm the soundtrack as a final like punchline because it does have a, like kind of a wicked sense of humor um besides just being a very uncomfortable like single location horror film um, I thought it was pretty good, honestly, for something that's got kind of like a so-so reputation from what I can tell. That was definitely my favorite of the pair. Yeah, it's so much better than people are giving it credit for, you yeah. know, just really and truly something that's like very uh, smartly composed and like clearly done very smartly within the like restrictions of COVID. And yet, you know, people just hated it because they hate open endings now. People just hate open endings, I guess. Oh, yeah. They need everything tied up and solved. In general, though, my um, list-making process right now is a fucking mess. 
I have like five movies that I rated above four stars this year. And I feel very confident about those being like my five favorite movies of the year. But the problem is that I usually do a list of 20 movies. And the more good stuff I've been watching lately, the more confused I am about that. Like I have five movies that seem right. And then way too many movies to fill out the rest of the list. And I have no idea where any of them are going to go or if they're going to make it. But a lot of them have been recent watches and I will recommend as many as I can quickly because they're all four star films and very good. One was on shutter. It's called the medium. Uh, It's a Thai supernatural horror film. I'm bringing this up first because it is relevant to a conversation we've all had before. Uh, The director of the whaling is an executive producer on the film. Oh, okay. He hired this Thai filmmaker who made that movie Shudder uh, a while ago, which I believe is about a haunted camera. Um, he hired him to make a whaling sequel. And oh, in the um, in the development, it became its own weird thing that was like different enough from the whaling that they just like dropped that connection and it became its own movie. And that's called The Medium. Okay. It's set in Thailand and it has a lot of the same setup as the whaling. Like the uh, main character is this like shaman who has inherited this spirit of a shaman through her family line. And it always goes down through women. And it's basically both a like spirit that possesses your body and a profession. Like you're the village shaman and people come to you for like medical and spiritual counseling and intervention. It's a found footage film. So it's shot like a documentary and her niece appears to be inheriting the shaman spirit next, like the next logical secession of that spirit. And then it turns out the spirit inhabiting her is something much more fucked up and dark and demonic. And then you remember those scenes in the whaling where they had those, like the competing shaman rituals to like those like supernatural battles for like the spirit of the child. Um, That's what's happening here as well. It's just done through this like found footage documentary gone to hell um, framing. So it recalls like a ton of movies you've seen before. Like it recalls the whaling and the exorcist and Blair witch project and paranormal activity and every, you know, post unfriended screen life horror film, but it does that all very well. And you would think piling all these like references on top of each other, these like, it would just get kind of messy and loose, but instead it's like, the good kind of horror chaos. We're just like, what the fuck is happening? This is insane. Um, especially for the last like half an hour, it's just like full blown haunted house spirits going awry and everyone puking up black bile. And um, I don't know. It's really good stuff. Really spooky. All right. I do love spooky. That one's on shutter. A new one on Hulu called all light everywhere. Uh, this is from Theo Anthony who made rat film a few years ago, which is like this kind of experimental essay movie about, um, explosive rat populations in Baltimore and how that's actually has a like very detailed history of like racial segregation. All light everywhere is also about Baltimore racial politics, but this time it's about police body cameras. Um, I would actually hmm. recommend this most to boomer as an antidote to a glitch in the matrix. Um, okay. It's doing the same kind of like spooky modernism, big ideas, loose essay film kind of like vibe, except it has like very specific concrete, you know, like logical details and like arguments to make. Basically, you know, you already walk into this movie knowing that police body cameras are not about 
legal accountability for police officers. It's like just to protect them and make them look good in court. And they're like sort of made to obscure what really happened, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, basically justify the execution of black people on the street. This movie sets all that up and delivers it the way you would expect. It also does this thing where it dials back all cameras, like especially movie cameras to the invention of the movie camera. All of them are weapons and are obscuring what's real. And like, you know, particularly leaving stuff out of the frame to present a sort of racist illusion of bias of like unbias. So like uh, the, the earliest movie cameras were these things called like the um, the photographic revolver and the photographic rifle. Yeah. So like they're literally weapons that you point at something to capture like a moving picture. And immediately from that invention, it was all it was used like as evidence in legal trials um, specifically to, you know, back up the idea that like this automated record of images is um, something that like proves that the officers capturing them are, you know, unbiased and just like observers and it just backs all that up through um to modern you know protests over police executions of black men in the street and um it's really fucked up it's got that kind of loose modern version of uh documentary filmmaking where it's not all talking heads it's all just like overwhelming information that like you kind of have to piece together yourself so it's very artistic on top of being informative it was uh, a tough pill to swallow because it basically made all movies seem like a racist tool of the police state and not something good. Like it kind of made me want to find a new hobby uh, by the end of it. It's very sickening uh, in that mm. way. I also watched Benedetta in the theater yesterday, the new Paul Verhoeven film. Oh, yeah. How was that? Well, uh, if Boomer said earlier that fart jokes is not his thing, then um, maybe avoid this one because it opens with several fart and shit jokes, which I did not expect. <laughs> it's uh, it's outrageous Verhoeven, you know, on his bullshit. And it's great. It's about a true story of this uh, nun who um, rose to power in her convent. Like, it's very much a political rise to power story. Um, where she was experiencing these visions of Jesus, you know, as his bride, she's like, feels entitled to him. He's like speaking to her. She experiences like stigmata and like, you know, all the classic like sainthood visitations, yeah, the classics, of, like all the good stuff. And it's very advantageous for the convent and the small village it's in um, for that to be true. But uh, a lot of people see it as blasphemy. And there's like a political struggle, like, you know. Why ruin a good thing if her being a walking miracle is going to bring attention and money to this village and this convent? Why um, point out the blasphemy and the um, false reports of miracles? Like, let's just kind of ride this out. The problem is that she becomes so consumed with power that she just does whatever she wants, which is what makes it a very fun Paul Verhoeven movie because you have these like very Ken Russell type like spiritual visions very like erotic mania of her like experiencing these, this like religious ecstasy as Jesus's wife. Um, and then also in the flesh, she has um, openly lesbian trysts with this like younger nun that she's taken under her wing. So the movie's like this erotic thriller about whether or not these like two lesbians are going to get caught. It's a political thriller about, you know, the power and money dynamics of this convent in the small town. And it's also just 
Paul Verhoeven trying to offend you and uh, make you laugh uh, <laughs> all at the same time. And it, it all works on all those levels. It's a very good movie. And it's a lot of movie. It's very overwhelming. Like by the end, there were like these like torture scenes where they're like, trying to get the nuns to confess to their evil deeds. And I was just like, I'm kind of done here. I need this to wrap up soon. <laughs> I'm getting exhausted, but not in a bad way. Uh, after the Verhoeven movie, I watched another film in which a young woman experiences sexual visions. Uh, I watched this movie called Jumbo, which stars um, Natalie Morant from Portrait of Lady on Fire. Oh. Uh, she plays a stunted, like an emotionally stunted woman in her like 20s who has her first sexual feelings and romantic feelings for an amusement park ride. Uh, for this like giant tilt-a-whirl at the amusement park where she works. And she has sex with it in the um, abstract kind of way. <laughs> like, there's no like um, actual physical sexual contact with this ride, but she has like a full romantic relationship with it, with all the bells and whistles. Which sounds like it would be kind of a joke. Like, it sounds like it'd be like a quirky, kind of like ironic joke that this woman has um, sexual trysts with an amusement park ride but it's actually treated with this sort of like genuine indie romance kind of drama vibe and uh you really just want people to let her do her thing by the end you're like uh whether or not what's happening is real with the amusement park ride it does not matter like just kind of let her be you know humor her please because she has so little going on in her life why not let her have this yeah that's like a real thing with people where they like are in love with inanimate objects and things. So it's interesting. Like, I feel like there's been a lot of like movies and things that kind of touch that topic lately. Yeah. Titan has a touch of that at the beginning of it. Actually, Jumbo was very good, but it illustrated something with Titan for me. where like, you know, that movie has been kind of like reduced to, Oh, it's the movie where the lady has sex with a car, which is true but is a very small portion of what that movie's doing. And by the end, you're like, forget that that even happened because there's like so much fucking else going on. And Jumbo is just that. Like, this is the movie where the lady has sex with an amusement park ride. And it's very good and it's very like genuine the way it's handled. But like, it's also a kind of limiting premise if that's all you're going to do. So it kind of made me appreciate Titan more uh, in retrospect. It's like, oh, I'm glad it pushed through and did other things besides just that one thing. And that's why that one's sitting at my number one for the year. And this one is floating around in that, like, I have no idea what I'm doing on my list anymore because I have all these four-star movies floating around. Two more real quick. Uh, our movie of the year last year was Deerskin uh, from Quentin Depew, who, you know, most famous for the movie Rubber. This year, he has a new film called Mandibles, which, I don't know, Deerskin felt like a departure for him where, like, all of his movies are kind of about the absurdity of life and about nothing like capital N nothing. And Deerskin was actually about something. Like it was about sort of the ego of filmmaking and like his own absurd ego as someone who like pours all these like resources into movies about nothing. <laughs> like just kind of like making fun of himself. His new one, Mandibles, is a return to the sort of like absurdist comedies that he's been doing before Deerskin. But that's fine because it's very funny. It's about these like two bumbling criminals who discover a gigantic housefly uh, in the trunk of a car and decide that they can train this housefly to um, aid them in their crimes and like make, make them rich quick and watching them 
train this this fly. It's like a fly about the size of like a 60-pound dog, I'd say. Watching them try to train, you know, this like element of nature that has stumbled into their lives while also losing track of that plot. They're basically like dumb and dumber type characters. Like they're basically from like a Farley Brothers movie from the 90s. It's just a funny hangout movie, eventually. It's like the fly doesn't even really matter because nothing matters because he just makes these sort of like absurd comedies. But I laughed the entire time and I was in a great mood the entire time. And it was only like 80 minutes. And that one's on Hulu now too. And then finally, last one. And I saved an animated movie for last because we are talking about animation today. Uh, there's a movie called Crypto Zoo that I got from the library. Uh, the New Orleans Public Library has it on Blu-ray, which is kind of rare. Uh, and it's also appearing on Hulu in the next couple weeks. Crypto Zoo is from Dash Shaw, who does graphic novels for like the Fantagraphics kind of set. His visual style is just kind of like multi-layered colored pencil drawings mixed with like multimedia, just like photographs and doodles and things like that. Um, it's very like crudely hand-drawn stuff that becomes intricate in its layering and like how complex visually it gets. I have a hard time with his movies where like, his only one before this was my entire high school sinking into the sea. Um, and I, I liked that one a lot as well, but I never know how seriously to take them because the animation is like this really complex, psychedelic swirling, just like visual overload. And the characters and the dialogue is very casual. It's like these like kind of like mumblecore, kind of like shrugging conversations. Um, and I can never tell if that's supposed to be like an ironic joke that like while the world is like falling apart around these characters, they're kind of just like bumbling around doing their normal thing. Or if you're supposed to take their like turmoil and their like conflict seriously, it, it's a little tough. Um, in crypto zoo in particular, it's about this futuristic zoo for cryptids for like, you know, unicorns and Gorgons and Sasquatches and stuff like that. The conflict at the center of it is very big and political. It's about the people who live in the world with these cryptids, one half of them wants to use them for the military, like weaponize them and like tame them as weapons. And the other half wants to provide them a sanctuary where they can live side by side with humans. But because of capitalism, that sanctuary has to make money. So it becomes more of like an amusement park and a zoo than like an actual like safe haven for cryptids. And the whole movie is like, really tied up in these like ethical and political conflicts between these two warring sides. But like, I don't know how much of that is like an ironic joke versus how much of it is sincere. By the end, I was so overwhelmed by the visual stuff that it didn't really matter. And I kind of just chalked it up to it being nostalgic for seventies and eighties fantasy movies like Gondahar and uh fantastic planet, the last unicorn, like this like seventies, like issue films yeah. where like, it's like pollution right. or um, ethnic genocide. Like they have like that very serious political core at their center. Um, this one, I guess between the money and the military, it's got a very like critical eye towards just capitalism, spoiling all good things, all pure things in life. So I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take that sincerely. It's just also a movie that starts with Michael Sarah as a stoner nudist who gets gored by a unicorn. So it's like, I don't know where that balance really is but it's really beautiful to look at and has a lot going on um, definitely the most excited i've been for an animated movie all year in the very near future a group of brilliant scientists have created a machine that can control our dreams 
But now, the device is missing. To solve the mystery and save humanity, she must stop the dream terrorists from altering our minds. This week, I had us all watched the 2006 Satoshi Kon movie Paprika, which came like five years before uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception. But similarly, it is about a team of doctors who have developed a device that allows you to be in somebody else's dream and share their dream. They are using the device for psychotherapy and to help people get over neuroses and things. The device then gets stolen, and from there we are kind of down a rabbit hole of what's real, who's controlling a dream, are you still in a dream, and how do you know? So something that I like about this movie and just like all of his movies, obviously, is just the animation. It is so fluid and so moving. It just feels like vibrant, like full of life, every scene. And I love how he just matches the motions from scene to scene. Like there's this scene very much at the beginning with this cop. They're sharing the dream and it's just going from dream to dream to dream and it's just every motion is just flying through and this one just continuous like moving scene. Yeah, like every few frames it's like a match cut to a different Yeah, exactly. Like it just keeps moving. But, you know, we also have um within this is our sort of dream superhero character of Paprika who she helps the dreamers kind of break free from this overlord who is trying to take over people's dreams and punish the people who are trying to technify sort of a dream state. And there's very much like a idea of like the consciousness versus technology that is kind of just at war supposedly in this movie where I think the ultimate thing is just how our consciousness fuels a technology such as the internet is even a whole bit about it um yeah so uh i think this is not a first watch for me or brandon um so boomer do you have some first watch thoughts uh well i forgot that this movie was on the criterion channel and that we had been told that because when i went to look for it on HBO Max, which usually has the Criterion Collection on there, I couldn't find it. I thought that was where I was supposed to go. So then I first accidentally tracked down a French film from the 90s, also entitled Paprika. Oh no! (laughs) And then when I finally was able to track down a copy of Paprika online and get it onto my computer through completely legal means, it turned out to be (laughs) the dubbed version. I was like, oh no. But at the time, it felt like time was running out because we were going to be recording so soon. So I watched it anyway. I was really looking for the Inception themes because that was kind of the thing that I had always heard about this movie. And I guess if I had seen this first and then saw Inception, I would have been like, wow, they stole that. But having seen Inception first and going back to this one, I was looking for things that were more overt than what happened like i had always heard oh it's the hotel scene is basically a whole steal 
It's just the concept, yeah. honestly. And I mean, the hotel scene, okay, but like, also no. <laughs> it's also the most boring way to think about this wonderful film to me. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, I don't care about that connection at all either. And I definitely saw this one first. It did not bother me when I saw Inception because, I don't know, they're not even in the same league. <laughs> like, uh, no, not at all. <laughs> this is one of the greatest films of all time. Inception is fine. Yeah, Inception's a heist movie. It's okay. I was very confused by it also because <laughs> the 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 film opens in a in a very strange and surreal way because it opens in a dream. But after all the trouble I had gone through trying to find this movie, it does kind of go straight to that too, without even like like a distributor screen, like a distributor title, at least not what I saw. So I was like, what is happening? Is this, is there like minutes missing from the beginning of this movie? Did it open with the um, clown car? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it that's opened with the circus yeah. scene. Yeah. But I had, I could not figure out what was going on and then restarted it because I was restarting the movie just to make sure I hadn't missed anything. I was like, oh, no. And to be honest, this, <laughs> it's been so long now since I did watch it that I'm like, do I even remember what it was about <laughs> anymore? Uh, except that it did seem homophobic and then fat phobic, but then it turned out to not be fat phobic, but it still was a little homophobic. Yeah. Sorry. What specifically is the homophobia? When they go looking for the, the first person that we learn has been sucked mm-hmm. into the dream, there's yeah. like expressed disgust at his ownership of gay porn. Oh yeah. Okay. And then yeah. more crucially, uh, in the climax, when the um, villain has her pinned to the table like a butterfly, um, he is oh. tormented most by the fact that he traded his body for corporate favors uh, for the main boss. And it's supposed to be like this like source of shame for him that he like basically was a rent boy. Yeah, that part's gross. So is the fat stuff. Um, I guess it softens on the fat stuff a little bit uh, at the end. Yeah. But um, a lot of jokes at his expense throughout the film. The fat stuff, yes. I did remember. I'm sorry. I did not remember the homophobia somehow. Even though that's the sort of stuff that sticks with me. I'm just going to bash myself here for a second. I guess I was uh, a little too dense to catch the using his body for the corporate ladder. Because I thought it was more like... He's not able-bodied, so he's just getting this lad to do all his biddings. Hmm. They're, at one point, like, metaphorically one flesh, right? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure. I I remember the dialogue that both of you were talking about, and I think, honestly, it's almost as if both of them are perfectly acceptable. Well, I mean... Interpretations. I don't know. Even in that scene, he, like, sexually assaults her, but not in a very direct way that you would recognize, where, like, it's not like he, like, penetrates her, you know, missionary position or something. He, like, splits her open with his hand to reveal her true persona underneath this, like, skin that she's created for herself. Um, And he does so by plunging his hand into her crotch first. And then yeah. splitting the seam of her like fake body up to reveal the real paprika inside. So I think there's a lot of symbolic stuff going on in that scene, mm-hmm. but I, I the implications are very dark and like fucked up and yeah, you know, not exactly moral, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I don't know for like a um, a thriller cop movie. I just kind of accept that as part of the genre, even though like it shouldn't be, it doesn't need to be. No, it doesn't. Not the part that stood out to me in the film, but um, definitely there for sure. Yes. I do consider this 
one of my favorite movies ever made. Um, even though I'm not really a big anime person, like I don't really care. That, that's not true. I do care about the genre. <laughs> I do care about the medium. It's just, I'm not very well versed in it. And I think there's something to be said about calling yourself an anime fan that implies like a very specific <laughs> sort of thing. I can't claim it because I feel like I'd have to have this yeah. whole like library of knowledge that I'm just really far behind on. Um, I I saw yeah. this movie in the theater in Baton Rouge specifically because I was watching some, you know, bland indie film. I'm thinking like Pre- Breakfast on Pluto, maybe in the theater and this trailer played before it. And I was like, what the fuck is that? Uh, and I had to go see it. <laughs> um, and it really blew my mind. And I think it really articulates something about movies and about animation that I struggle to put into words, which is just like this movie at its core is about like sharing dreams and it's about achieving dreams through technology. And to me, that's what movies are like the sort of like grander quote that people use more often is like the Roger Ebert one, which is like movies are a machine that generate empathy. And I guess that's true, but that's not really why I watch movies in particular. I like movies that, push into this like sort of shared subconscious that we all have um, and like kind of break out these like surreal unformed thoughts. Uh, Some of them are ugly Mm -hmm. and not moral. And some of them are sexual in a way that's like not achievable in the flesh. Uh, And some of them are like really beautiful and like earnest and, you know, do generate empathy for other people because you're sharing this like human subconscious with them. Um, And I think this movie really pulls all that stuff together um, especially in its use of animation, which is not really bound to like, I feel like too many animated movies are like bound to what you could do with a live action film. And Satoshi Kon in general, like his three best movies for me are this one, perfect blue and millennium actress. And they're like the kind of animated yeah. movie that actually use the medium for what it's good for, which is like achieving stuff you could do in no other artistic medium. Um, yeah. And it, it's just visually yes. splendid in that way and like bursting with imagination every single scene. Yeah, I really, I really like the talking about the movies bit too, because there's so many scenes where they're in the movie theaters or there's movie posters and, you know, marquees in this like back alley of dreams, you know, where all of the characters kind of see this back alley sort of place. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely the idea of film and dreams, kind of. Even that first chase sequence you were referencing earlier where they do all those yeah. match cuts, um, the dreams in particular are dreams of movies that that cop has had a personal connection to and seen. So, like, there's, like, Tarzan swinging on a rope, there's the greatest show circus act, and then there's, um, like, a 40s noir picture on a train. Just, mm-hmm. like, a really rapid succession of, like, movie iconography like it's not it's not an accident that this is like the shared dreams and like technological dreams thing is connected to this filmmaker character who gave up filmmaking to become this cop. Like that that is yeah, very explicit. A, what a downgrade. Yeah, definitely uh, <laughs> would have been a much happier, better person if he had uh, not yeah. given up on his dream. And it's interesting. Like I feel like there's a lot of filmmakers who were preoccupied with film, but. I don't think any of them are really as interesting as this movie or like Millennium Actress, you know, both of those movies very much like love letters to film. 
So yeah, I I really like you bringing that up because you know what's more dreamlike than going into a room and having all the lights turn off, <laughs> and then suddenly you're immersed in these images on a screen. But I love that it works also on um, dream logic, like the animation, just yeah. things like plunging out of walls and all of the inanimate objects walking are just so good. Like the big parade, yeah. honestly, is kind of my favorite thing. Every time it's on screen, it just makes me happy, even though it's supposed to be like a nightmare. It reminded me of Robert Crumb's early stuff before he got into his like fetish yeah. comics. He did those like Fleischer perversions that were like these really mm-hmm. happy like Mickey Mouse era cartoon characters that were just like so happy it was like alarming. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. this is the same kind of like parade of like wide smiles and like bright eyes. And a lot of the little characters in the parade are so cute. But the fact that it just yes. keeps marching on and absorbing more people into its like madness uh, is really sinister. Yeah. It also reminded me a lot of Mardi Gras. Like it's a hard oh, yeah. feeling to capture, but like when you duck out of the madness to go into like a bar to just to piss or like to catch, you know, a moment of silence. I remember a few, yeah. a few Mardi Gras ago, like a few, I'm talking about like 15 years ago. Um, We would like take <laughs> the ferry over to the West bank to Algiers point to just like have like an hour of silence. And we did this like three times that, that fat Tuesday and would come back to the parade, like the big, you know, swelling party. And it would be the same loud, obnoxious, garish celebration that it was when we left. And that, that's what this feels like. They keep leaving that parade and going back to these like normal conversational exchanges. And then the parade bursts yeah. back in and it's like, nothing's changed. Uh, it just keeps marching on whether or not they're participating in it. Yeah. And it, it's very easy like you said, to just like accidentally get swept up in yeah. it. And, you know, especially you know, Mardi Gras Day is like very much like that. Except, you know, no giant Buddhas and unfortunately no no amazing marching frogs. I think it's just the frogs. The frogs are so <laughs> I cute. I just really like the frogs. <laughs> and uh, also like watching it this go around, I was like, oh, wow. Like, I'm sure... The people who did Over the Garden Wall were like frogs. A frog band? Like, (laughs) yeah, frog band. (laughs) Like, once again, like the dreams in the subconscious, like that animals playing instruments, like is such a just universal, like sort of subconscious imagery, just like cross-culturally and like through time. What what drew you to, to talking about this movie in particular, Allie, at this time? Oh, well, you know, we had been talking about how we need to cover more like anime and animated stuff and i was like you know what's a good movie (laughs) paprika yeah i'm delighted that i got to watch it again because i love this movie and i I love revisiting it whenever i can but also i feel a little a little bummed that it seemed like you missed your target because boomer i'm not feeling the enthusiasm gushing from you i know (laughs) i i was it's just been so long now is the problem (laughs) i I was looking forward to it, That's and I was bad. talking about it's it. Okay. <laughs> it, it. It's life. Life happens. But, you know, I watched it, like, like a week before we were originally going to record. Now it's been, like, three weeks, and I'm, like, I'm struggling. It's such a dreamlike movie that I'm struggling yes. to remember things from it. Like, I can remember individual pieces, and I remember m- mostly just spending a lot of time being kind of confused. And I did enjoy <laughs> it. 
I, I, you know, I always like things, uh, movies about things that are small. <laughs> you know, like the borrowers and how do you shrink the kids and even Ant Man. Like I, uh, that's like a a sweet spot for me. And there were some moments of that in this, but there were also times where they're in the dream world and like the flying paprika appears in the sky to warn like past paprika not to go somewhere and i'm like i don't i i understand that this is dreamlike but it's it's it kind of started to feel almost consequenceless the more it went on just because i was like okay everything's just gonna go to go to shit everything's just falling apart and i guess there is there's something really interesting about how obviously like the things that are happening can't really be happening in the waking world. They're somehow being interpreted in the dream world as something else, but it doesn't matter if everyone's yeah. in the dream world or are those things happening in the real world? Well, it's, I don't know. it's less that they're happening. Um, I guess your body is doing things that your while well, your mind's occupied. So like paprika, when she's joining the parade or like being seduced into joining the parade, she like almost walks off a balcony and like accidentally kills herself. Um, so like right. there's a danger yeah. there, but more, I think it's just the infectiousness of madness. So like the more people hear the sort of like anti-logic Mad Libs gibberish that happens when the parade starts marching through your own head, that's the danger is that like it's yeah. infectious and that the entire world eventually will slip into this like dream logic mania. But they all seem pretty happy, honestly, following that frog band around. So I, I don't know if it would be the worst thing in the world, <laughs> but uh, nothing would ever get done. We'd probably just starve to death while we're like, you know. Just going la 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 and like walking around in circles. Yeah, I better hope you're good at bassoon. Because um, <laughs> other rallies, that way. frog band does not want you. Maybe sometimes I'm just too literal. I really enjoyed all the dream sequences stuff, but there was a part of my brain that couldn't stop trying to figure out how all of it was happening and just enjoy that it was happening. And that's on yeah. me. You're talking about how it slipped away from you a lot. I actually watched this movie like three times before I remembered that I had watched this movie. <laughs> really? Because um, the first two times I watched it, it was so late at night and I thought for sure I had fallen asleep during the movie. Um, so wow. like that is how dreamlike I feel like this movie is to me. Um, don't start movies at like 2 a.m. You're going to fall asleep or think you did. <laughs> and if they're about dreaming, you're not going to know if you actually watch them. You know, I generally try to engage only with the more positive uh, sides of like YouTube film criticism and like video essayists. But when you do that, you do still get recommendations for like things like I hate everything and Cinema um, Sins. Yeah, I blocked Cinema Sins. But the I hate everything guy. I think he's kind of funny sometimes. So every once in a while when I'm like really like desperate for something to keep the silence at bay and keep me from losing my mind, I'll watch I Hate Everything. He and Your Movie Sucks are both people who uh, are generally more negative than I would want, but sometimes they're funny. And so I'll, I'll you know, I'll check them out. And he d- the Your Movie Sucks guy, I actually think it was not the I Hate Everything guy, did a review of Squid Game that was generally positive. But then he did mention that at one point he accidentally switched it from subtitles to dubs. And he actually plays just like a, a seven or eight second clip 
of Squid Game with the dub actors. And I don't want to say anybody's bad at their job. But he was like, and yeah, while I was watching it, I remembered that most of the people who watched it watched it like this and plays this dubbed instead of subtitled section for seven or eight seconds. And it's so painful. And I don't know if it's because it's Netflix or not, but I have noticed a lot of times that the content that they have that was dubbed after they bought it, as opposed to something like, you know, we watched... um the cat returns and I watched that dubbed Mm -hmm. instead of subbed, but that was dubbed by an independent company, not by like Netflix in house. And I watched this French crime drama about a year ago, uh, something about like dark woods or something. It had a very generic title where the dialogue was so good. But if I was like, Oh, you know, why don't I cook while I continue to watch? And I switched it to dubbed so that I could listen to it. I was like, wow, this makes a world of difference in how I'm feeling about the thing that I'm watching. And that might have been something that happened here with Paprika as well, where if it had been subtitled when I saw it, I might have been more accepting of some of the film (laughs) in general, because I think that the voice acting in this one was bad. The Criterion Channel? I think I've got it. I pay for it for Boomer to have access to it. Oh, he just okay. forgot. I was going to say. I, <laughs> I just forgot. <laughs> and I don't want to say anything bad about like, you know, who these voice actors are. But there's just something about everyone being a little too cheerful. That is a problem. You know, I feel like in anime, voice actors are either too cheerful or too shouting. And it is hard to get that like sweet spot in the dub of yes. not sounding totally whiny or totally upbeat. I think the only argument for dubs for Satoshi Kon movies in particular would be that like the visual information is so overwhelming in his more frantic works. Yeah. That like to compete um reading the dialogue at the bottom, it's like you're missing more detail in the actual like animation that's filming the frame. So, like, listening to a dub would free your eye to sort of, like, wander around for, like, minute details a little more. But, I don't know. I was at a screening of Perfect Blue in the theater, and they accidentally played the dubbed version on the night that was specifically supposed to be subtitled. And the audience, like, oh, basically, no. um, basically, not rioted, but, like, protested in mass. <laughs> like, all these, like, nerds were, like, up in arms about it. Um, and I, I initially did not care. That that's what happened, but they were there very specifically for the subtitles. Yeah, and um, I'm glad they did go back and fix it. But it, it was a sometimes the nerds. Are yeah, right. well, <laughs> don't give them too much power; <laughs> they'll, they'll run wild with it. <laughs> I won't. I I know they got the Schneider cut, and they're already more dangerous than we could have conceived. <laughs> they're trying to get David Ayer's cut of a uh, Suicide Squad back now, and that's too much. We used to have a country. <laughs> Laws used to matter. A more important question to me, besides like the dub versus sub debate, what is Paprika's cutest look in this movie? Because I, I have a very specific costume oh. I'm thinking of immediately. I was thinking the little fairy outfit. Ooh, that is pretty good. When she's flying like the down Tinkerbell look. into the, the dream. Yeah, yeah, I love the Tinkerbell look. I'm also going to go with the Disney one. Um, I love her in the Pinocchio outfit when she falls out of the whale's. Oh, yeah. She's dressed like a little boy with suspenders and that uh, fake yes. nose. So adorable. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> kind of curious what a like anime Pinocchio movie would look like after that, because that's another like oh, over the top visual spectacle that, that could be reworked. I just saw a live action version of it last year that I thought did a really good job of maintaining oh, the magic yeah, of it. You said it was great. Yeah, it's very good. But I still think a, a you know an anime update. Why not keep remaking Pinocchio? They keep doing it anyway. Yeah, why not? I mean, I would rather Pinocchio than so many of the other things they keep right. remaking. I'm gonna be honest. Give me a little lying child <laughs> who turns into a donkey. Much preferred. I still am glad that I saw this, and I'm looking forward to watching it again and maybe understanding it more. You know, we've talked about how much I like enjoy Suspiria, but that was a movie that I had to see a few times before I could remember more than one or two things about it. Another very dreamlike space. I feel like this is my usual sweet spot. Like, I want things to feel dreamlike yeah. and loose and, like, um, illogical. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. I'm, like, biased in the other direction. I want this, uh, but I also need to remind myself not to watch it too late. Because <laughs> then I'll be like, I haven't seen that. I fell asleep. No, I didn't fall asleep. I love dreamlike, wild, fantastic colors, no real logic stuff. It's just, yeah. When it's late at night, it'll, it'll get you. The things that this reminded me of were, of course, Little Nemo. Yep. Yes! I also would recommend uh, the animation Double King by Felix Colgrave. It's about 10 minutes long. It's all on YouTube. And also the Animals episode of the Adult Swim series Off the Air. It's also on YouTube and it's about 11 minutes long. And then also, of course, The Congress, I guess, is a movie that more recently kind of explored all that the visual potential of an animation can contain. Um, like this one, but Animal and Double King especially. And the Congress has a lot of overlap in how like our collective subconscious is so marked by pop culture media. Yeah. And like, um, you know, you can become anything in that world and your imagination is your only limitation. And yet um, it's all like pop icon figures that people like choose to become in that animated world. And I think Paprika is kind of the same thing. Like you can dream about anything, um, and of course, all the shared dreams that the people have in the movies are sort of tinged by movie iconography, especially the, like the cop character, but not, not just him. Like there's a lot of like movie pop culture ephemera yeah. everywhere, including the Pinocchio bit. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. Like, you know, we're talking about how infectious madness is, but how infectious like that sort of iconography and culture. It's like, yeah, it just it gets into your subconscious. It just marches Marches That's right why I can't be mad about any connections to Inception. It's like, okay, yeah. yeah, this movie came out. It was like wildly inventive. Of course, it's going to have like echoes and other work. That's kind of how genre filmmaking works. I'm like, I'm not, not mad about say, it. That's kind of how like filmmaking ideas and stuff yeah. work. I mean, so long as it has its own take. And, you know, like you said before, like, it's not even the same league. <laughs> like, it's not the same like style. It's not the... S- I wouldn't even say it's the same genre. It's its own thing. But it is notable that they do both have a dream device. And I think it's interesting the two different ways it is cho- chosen to be used in each of the movies. Like, one, you know, is very much about the subconscious and psychology. And the other is like, what can we steal? <laughs> right. The American blockbuster version. Yeah, the two types of people. <laughs> There's also a lot of like 
overlap between um, Perfect Blue and Black Swan that I remember people pointing out as well. Oh yeah, uh, which yeah. you know, that's fine. I just th- I just think that's like the most like boring way to think about either of those movies. Like it doesn't elevate Perfect Blue or Paprika at all to me to like say that they had that influence. It kind of like. I don't know. It's like the least interesting conversation you can have about them. It's like they they sound so well on their own that like bringing Christopher Nolan in the conversation, it's like, why, why, do, why, why are we doing that? He's not that interesting. He's fun. You know, cool. Uh, somebody who makes a movie watches movies. <laughs> well, next week on the show, uh, we are going to talk about another director who's worth more discussion than Tarantino or Nolan. Uh, we're going to talk about Almodovar's Pain and Glory. Uh, it's actually like a semi-autobiographical film about Almodovar's youth, of which there are many, uh, but also about his <laughs> old age uh, and like his post-back surgery, like opioid addiction, uh, which I think it's the only movie like that. Uh, and then we kind of spiraled that out into a larger episode about semi-autobiographical films from directors, uh, movies that are like based in truth, but, you know, have a fictional twist to them. And uh, in the meantime, Boomer, like you said, posted a couple of reviews this week, and I will link those in the show notes. And um, check out swampflix.com. We are pumping out reviews very quickly right now because it is end of the year catch-up season. Everyone's watching a lot of stuff. Check it out. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Take a lift to the top of the Empire State. Take a drive across the Golden Gate. March, march, march.